I'm Ryan Anderson, president of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and welcome to our new podcast. We're starting with a mini-series focused on the future of the pro-life movement titled Life After Dobbs. Enjoy this first episode. Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey haunt our country. We shall not weary and we shall not rest. We are thousands strong to tell the world, reverse Roe versus Wade. Jeannie Mancini has served for the past decade as president of the March for Life, which is best known for planning the annual March for Life in Washington, D.C. every January around the anniversary of Roe v. Wade. She's a frequent speaker for student groups, pro-life groups, and pregnancy care centers, and she serves as a consultant to the U.S. Catholic Conference of Bishops Pro-Life Committee. Jeannie has testified before the U.S. Congress and regularly consults, meets with, and presents to state and federal elected officials, including at the White House and the Department of Justice. Previously, she worked with the Family Research Council and the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Jeannie was the 2021 recipient of the Catholic Information Center's John Paul II New Evangelization Award. So, Jeannie, thanks so much for joining us today. I'm honored to join you, too. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, I wanted to start by asking if you could tell us a bit about the history, uh, not only of the pro-life movement, but in particular, kind of the role of the March for Life in the pro-life movement, and in particular, uh, the group's founder, Nellie Gray. Yeah, I'd love to. So uh, so I've been working with the March for Life for nearly 10 years, and uh, the march began a year after Roe v. Wade. So, of course, Roe came down, Roe and Doe came down January 22nd, 1973. And so the following about October or so, Nellie Gray, the founder of the March for Life, gathered with other pro-life champions in her townhouse in Capitol Hill. And they talked about how they didn't want that first anniversary of legalized abortion in the United States to go unmarked, how they wanted to draw a line in the sand. So they you know, put their heads together and came up with this idea that they'd have the first march. And so they did. So they, they organized the very first March for Life in 1974, and there were approximately 20,000 there. It was very different than what the march looks like today. It was uh, right outside the Capitol, and um, I understand it was a very warm day, <laughs> which is very different than we typically have. The, this uh, it, it, typically that that time of year in Washington D.C. tends to be um, sort of the bitterest cold, you know, <laughs> of the season. Uh, but anyways, Nellie and the other pro-life leaders that organized that first march thought that that would go on one year, maybe maybe two years, because they all anticipated that Roe would be corrected. I mean, even back then, of course, they knew, they knew it was a decision of judicial activism, and they certainly did not anticipate that it would stay in the books for nearly 50 years. So they thought the march would be a one-year event, a two-year event. They never anticipated that it would go on this long, nor did they anticipate that it would grow to be the largest annual human rights demonstration worldwide. So we are that and very proud that, um, you know, quite the opposite of what abortion proponents expected, which is that we would become desensitized to abortion, that the march has grown in strength and volume every year and and lowered in terms of age demographics. So, um, so that's a little bit about the march. Um, and Nellie, Nellie herself, you asked about Nellie, was an attorney. She was single. She never married. She was a devout Catholic. Uh, and she was a very feisty woman, very ardent uh, in her faith. She was known for a saying, no exceptions, no com- compromise. And um, 
it just had so much tenacity. Uh, so she'd worked for the government for many years. Um, she had her undergrad in, in economics, uh, really a scholar. And uh, she dedicated her whole life. Once she once Roe happened, she basically the following year retired from government service and dedicated her life to building a culture of life, both with the National Right to Life and then with the March for Life. And um, she ultimately died, I mean, working for the March for Life. Like her, her last recorded conversation was with someone about the March for Life and she was found the next day in her townhome um, deceased. And she was 88 when she passed away and she wow. was running the March for, I know, running the March for Life by herself, which I have to tell you just blows me away. I mean, so that was in 2012. And, um, you know, she wouldn't use email, like she'd only communicate via fax. And there she was at 88 running the March for Life, which I can't even begin to understand, but God bless her. That's amazing. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, and and thank you for for running the March now for the, for the past decade. Um, I grew up in Baltimore, but I never went to the March for Life. Um, you know, as a kid, my first march was when I was an undergraduate at Princeton. Um, and now my wife wow. and I make a point of going every year. We bring our kids. Uh, we were there this past year when it was like, I don't know, 20 degrees it didn't snow that day, but it had snowed the previous day, so there was snow on the ground. And we brought our three-year-old, our one-and-a-half-year-old, and then we had a 38-week in utero child with us, which <laughs> means that my wife did the entire march while 38 weeks pregnant. Um, and we love it. And so thank you um, for your leadership with the march. Um, it was three years ago. The theme of the march was uh, pro-life is pro-science. Uh, and I love that theme um, especially, you know, given the past two years of COVID when we were repeatedly told to trust the science. Um, could you share a little bit about that with us? You know, why, why you guys picked that as the theme for 2019? But then also why the pro-life movement is on solid scientific grounds uh, when we advocate for life. Yeah. And uh, I just want to digress for one minute. So I follow you, Ryan, on social media as much as I can. I'm only on Twitter. I'm kind of nerdy. I don't really get on Facebook. And I just love your story. I saw that your wife was about to have a baby and that she was at the march. And I just love to follow the pictures of your family and your firm and everything. I mean, I just have a holy envy of the <laughs> life that you live. So, uh, so thank, thank you. you. You're such, yeah, just such a, a great uh, witness of a culture of life. And Alexandra, you as well. And I, I want to really just uh, thank both of you for your book, but hopefully we can get to that too. So as for pro-life is pro-science. So one thing that I've enjoyed and I guess tried to, to really embrace is the opportunity for education that the March can be. So I see the March for Life as a springboard to um, allowing us to talk about what are the most cutting edge issues uh, in terms of building a culture of life. And so one of the things that I guess I'm maybe I'm most proud of working with the March for Life is some of the different themes that we choose throughout the years. and. Recently, I was doing a, an interview um, looking back over the last 10 years and the different themes that we've chosen. And um, they've each been chosen really for a very particular reason uh, related to some you know, negative thing happening with the culture of life, et cetera. So pro-life is pro-science. We chose that because you know, the, the terrible and erroneous mantra of the other side is that uh, we're religious, that, that our pro-life principles are, are solely based on religion. Um, and I am a religious person, but my pro-life principles are not at all based on that. They're much more based on philosophy and reason and logic and science. Um, and just the reality that we are pro-science, we are pro-reason. You know, you think of um, fetus at ratio, for example, um, 
written by Pope John Paul II, that talks about how these two things, faith and reason, go hand in glove. Um, they're not at odds with each other. And so I can anecdotally, I can remember I used to work for the Department of Health and Human Services. So I did about five years with the government. And there was a time during the Obama administration that I was working in the office of the secretary. It was the first year of the Obama administration. But I was getting out of that job because I was uh, frankly tired of the anti-life policies that were being introduced and implemented and some of the things that were being undone from the former administration that had been pro-life. And I, I had an atheist a scientist who worked for, at the State Department in the in the highest offices of the State Department sort of corner me one day and say, "I need to just ask you, are you uh, are you leaving because you're pro life?" And I explained, "Yes." And he said, "Are you a religious person?" And I said, "Yes," but that's not why I'm pro life. And he he went on to say to me, and this is all just anecdotal, but he said, "I don't see how any scientist, you know, worth <laughs> worth their weight would would be would say that being pro life is is anti science." It's everything points to the fact that life begins at the moment of fertilization or conception. And it's, it's basically, um, it's just not being honest to say that. And so I, I appreciated that anecdotal story, but, but we do know, you know, we can remember that Obama said it was above his pay grade to define when life begins, but we do know the things that are necessary when life begins. And we know that life does begin from the moment of conception, you know, at that moment that we have all of our DNA that we need for our entire life, um, et cetera, et cetera. So that's just a little bit of fleshing out why we chose that theme. Yeah, I think it's a really important one. And, and some of my colleagues at National Review are, you know, agnostics or atheists and some of the most pro-life people I know. And so I, I know we all know in the pro-life movement that this is not, you know, many of us are very religious and that certainly informs our pro-life beliefs, but it's not at all required to be opposed to abortion. I think it's really um, a misunderstanding that's kind of intentionally perpetuated by supporters of abortion who want to dismiss us all as kind of these theocrats. Um, that's something we we talk a bit about in our in our book in chapter one, both about kind of the science of um, the unborn child, you know, the fact that this is a human being, and then kind of the the smear that we're all just kind of religious zealots trying to impose our views. Um, but another point we we talk about a bit in the book that I think the March for Life um, has addressed in the past is kind of the idea that uh, women who have abortions are actually um, also deeply harmed by this, right? It's not a solution in the way that abortion supporters say it is. It obviously is a, a harm to the unborn child. It kills the unborn child, but uh, the woman is harmed as well. So I know a, a recent March for Life theme um, was Life Empowers Women. So could you tell us a bit about, about this theme, why it was chosen, and maybe explain a bit about um, why pro-lifers often say pregnant mothers are the second victim of abortion. Yeah, so I'm going to begin with uh, with the last part of that about how abortion harms women. So uh, one of my favorite uh, professors or authors on this is uh, Priscilla Coleman, who's a psychologist uh, in Ohio. I think she was at Bowling Green for a while, but she's done extensive research on basically the trauma of abortion to women. And so there is no question that women suffer tremendously by and large um, from having chosen abortion. So things such as um, suicidal ideology, uh, depression, anxiety, other mental health issues uh, exponentially increase after a woman, substance abuse, after a woman has chosen abortion. And so there may be uh, situations where that doesn't happen to someone, but I'd say by and large, it's more normative for a woman to really to have 
suffered uh, psychological and emotional consequences of having made that choice. And so uh, I don't think that that is is, uh, well known in our culture. And my sense is that when a woman does make that choice and, and, you know, none of us, you've heard, of course, this saying where no one would wish this upon our worst enemy and um, that a woman is basically almost backed into a corner when she'd make a choice like that. But the the reality is that we're hearing from sort of the other side, this quote unquote, shout your abortion kind of mantra that there should be no shame associated with something like this. And uh, I, I just go back to the fact that reality is not arbitrary and that you when you choose abortion, you are taking a life and that you can't sort of undo that or pretend that you're not taking a life or you can call it something different. But taking a life does have its consequences and there is always hope and healing. But the sociological and physiological and psychological reality is that women suffer war wounds after having chosen abortion. So that's the first thing. Life empowers women. Well, gosh, there's so much to be said there. And I would say one of my favorite uh one of my favorite people that that is sort of a leader in in this area is uh, your colleague Erica Bakioki. Uh and I think she's got such a good understanding of how an erroneous view of a woman's reproductive system can um, sort of hurt her economically or or um, career wise, etc. And so the bottom line with our theme, life empowers women was to show that, yes, choosing life can be very hard, especially when you're up against a lot, like when a woman is facing an unexpected pregnancy, maybe when she doesn't have the support of the father, et cetera. We're not saying that this is easy, but it is the right choice. And we want to do everything we can as a culture to give her what she needs to make that choice and to quote unquote, empower her. And that she has it. Often what a woman needs to be told in the moment where she is facing an unexpected pregnancy and has this temptation to actually take the life of her unborn child is you've got this, you can do it. And of course, we know so many stories of women who have chosen that and either they've chosen to go the route, which I consider so noble of being a birth mother. So choosing adoption for their baby um, or choosing the child uh, to, to bringing the child to term and then raising the child and, and having a beautiful testimony there as well. Yeah, thank you. And 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 thank you for mentioning Erica. Um, you know, Zan and I, we, we, we quote her in the book, but uh, her book, the, the Rights of Women Reclaiming a Lost Vision, is just such a wonderful study on what could have been, um, you know, the missteps yeah. of the modern feminist movements, you know, kind of losing footing from, you know, some of the original uh, feminist thinkers in our country who were all pro-life, uh, all of whom saw uh, that abortion was bad for women. Um, you know, we're recording this before uh, um, the Supreme Court announces its decision uh, in Dobbs, although after the leaked uh, draft of the opinion was was in fact leaked. Um, and so if the outcome is what we all hope and pray it is, that, you know, this is going to be a post-Row America in a couple of weeks, what does that mean for the March for Life? Um, what does the March for Life look like in a post-Row America? And then follow-up question, it's only – Somewhat tongue in cheek, um, but only somewhat. Um, does the date stay the same? Do we do we have the march each year in the middle of January in the freezing cold, or do we move the date of the march for life to the celebration date of Dobbs? Like, how how are you guys thinking about all of that? What what does the march um, look like? Is it going to be more celebratory? You know, how how are you processing? 
Well, we are processing and we haven't fully processed. I mean, what seems very obvious to me is that we will need to continue to march at the national level because, for example, we just saw yesterday the Women's Health Protection Act, the so-called Women's Health Protection Act, which thankfully uh, didn't pass in the Senate, but that we'll continue to have fights at the federal judiciary as well, not only um, legislative. But what does a post-row, please God, a post-row march look like? Well, we and I'm, I'm hoping we can talk a little bit about our state March for Life initiative, which we began about five years ago. And we plan to be in all 50 states, hopefully over the course of the next five years or so this year, we're in five states. But I think that the state marches will be all the more important because rallying the grassroots at the level of the state will be critical because so much can happen um, within the legislative branches of the states if Roe does fully get overturned and and the question of abortion legislation can return to the states. And then nationally, what I would say is that we would be in a new season. Um, I'm loving, there's a great Churchill quote from sort of the beginning of World War II. And he talked about after they'd won a few of the most significant victories that they were at the end of the beginning. And I keep thinking about this in terms of where we are now culturally, and especially if this leaked opinion does fully get adopted, that we're at the end of the beginning, but we're like just going into chapter two or maybe chapter three of building a culture of life in the United States. And we've got so much you know, work ahead of us. It's not that we're done because of course the ultimate goal is to make abortion unthinkable, not you know, just to overturn Roe, which is huge. And if we do, oh my gosh, there will be so much reason to celebrate, but but to continue to make abortion unthinkable and to work more at the states and still at the federal level on all of those kinds of things. So we're grappling with all those questions about how the March for Life can best serve and how its importance will still stand in a post-Roe world, please God. Yeah, just to quickly follow up on that, are there any kind of new March for Life initiatives? I know you mentioned the state marches, but are there any other kind of projects on the horizon for your groups as you or your group rather as you kind of turn to the the possibility that this will become very much a state and local battle. Well, why don't I just share a little bit more about the state march initiative? We're putting most of our energies in that and have been for some time. Uh, and as I mentioned, this isn't a new initiative. It, it in fact, we even began this before President Trump was elected before we had our Supreme Court makeup as it is now. So we were asked five, six years ago, so many questions about starting marches on the ground in states, et cetera, that we just wanted to do a deeper dive and look into it. And also, just as the organization had, I was sensing that we were doing a little bit of mission creep. And I wanted us to remain as you know pure and, and focused and clear as possible so that we'd be able to bear the most fruit. And so we really began asking the question or continued asking the question, what do we bring to the table that no other pro-life group brings to the table? And, and how can we uniquely help to build a culture of life. And I mean, simply, <laughs> but it's through marches. I mean, that's what we do and do really well. So we decided to say yes, you know, to helping some of these groups start on the ground. And so what we found in the States is that there are two or three groups that are doing such good work. Uh, typically, the State Catholic Conference is doing a lot of great work. Um, and most states have a Catholic conference. There's typically a family policy council in the state like in Virginia, it's the Virginia Family Foundation run by Victoria Cobb. And often there's a right to life chapter in the state. And hopefully, usually those three groups work together. Um, not always, unfortunately, but so we're coming alongside those groups in some capacity. 
and um, rallying their people, our people, to be able to pass good legislation in the state. So I'll give you one or two examples of some some fun things that have happened. So last year was our first California March for Life at Sacramento, and that was the first pro-life march. They've had a few pro-life marches in California that are fantastic. My friend Eva Montaigne runs the West Coast Walk. But this was the first march that was specifically at the um, Capitol, on the steps of the Capitol. And we had a smaller crowd that day. It was in August, but it was it was a good crowd for our first march. And we had everyone text in about um, a bill related to health insurance coverage of abortion. And the next day it was removed from the House floor. So that was a total victory for us. And we saw that even, you know, under a thousand people texting in can make a difference there. Now it was reintroduced this year. So we're going to be fighting it again. But uh, between that and then just anecdotally, I was in Connecticut, we had our first annual Connecticut March for Life in Hartford back in the end of March. And we had about 3,000 people show up for that. And it's very blue state and very, very pro-choice state. And to get that many people out for the first March for Life was a pretty, pretty big deal. And uh, in the process of just, you know, interacting and engaging with the marchers, we'll ask them questions, kind of soundbitey, chanty questions like, do you want to make abortion unthinkable? And you can just imagine, you know, the roar <laughs> of the crowd. And so, not only do we hear that, but we were getting text messages from legislators inside saying how powerful that was. I mean, to those who you know are on the other side of this issue, to see so many young, happy, positive, loving faces and to hear their loving chants of how important this is, is really impactful. So we are making a difference with these state marches. So this year we are in, uh, like I said, California will be our second annual. That's in June. We just had Virginia two weeks ago. That was our fourth annual, and that was exciting. The first first one in Virginia was just a few months after then Governor um, Northam had made his terrible snafu talking about abortion after birth. Um, and and then uh, let's see, we're in Connecticut, and then we'll also be in Ohio in uh, October and in Pennsylvania for a second annual in September. Next year, we plan to be in ten states. That is awesome. And, and, and let me um, put a plug for the March for Life. Just you know, We're going to have listeners all across the country, some of whom you know can't make it to D.C. But if you can get to D.C., the National March for Life is always such a joyful um, occasion. Right? Happy is not the right word because you know we're there to kind of right. bear witness to a terrible um, Supreme Court ruling that wasn't just a bad court case but was an injustice to the unborn. But it's a joyful occasion. Um, uh, way of bearing witness. Uh, and it's a very positive, right? It, it's not focusing on the negative. It's a celebration of life. And so if you've never been to the March for Life and you can make it to D.C., try to do so. If you can't make it to D.C., try to attend your state uh, March for Life. Um, I didn't realize that you were going to be up to 10 next year. That's just great. So, so, so let me ask you this. If you were to do a SWOT analysis, how do you evaluate the health of the pro-life movement right now? Or are we ready for when Roe is overturned? Um, what more should we be doing to prepare? What more uh, should we be doing, you know, the day that Roe is uh, finally, please God, uh, overturned? Like, how do you kind of analyze wh where we are and, and what more we need to be doing? I think we're in a very good place. Where I think that we're, we're winning is changing hearts and minds, and yet we still have uh, a long way to go. But here's where we've changed over the last uh, 50 years or 40 years even or so. Uh, so, 35, 40 years ago, we had about 2,000 abortion clinics. Today, we have about 700 abortion clinics. The reverse, at that time, we had about 500 pregnancy care centers, or then they were called crisis pregnancy centers. Today, well over 3,000, and increasing in terms of financial support that they give to women and men every single year. 
the up the, the downtick in abortions is significant to the extent that we're almost at the lowest abortion rate and lowest number of abortions since Roe v. Wade ever, like within a year or two of that. So uh, the the high point, sadly, which was a low point for our culture, would have been in the early 90s, late 1980s. And then, of course, um, public opinion is shifting in the direction of life. So um, we all know that most people, when it's really sifted out, like, where do you stand on abortion, that most people wouldn't be favorable towards what a Roe allows. So the large majority of Americans would limit abortion at most of the first three months of pregnancy. And of course, we know that most abortions happen in the first three months. So we want to you know, continue to do the work there to change hearts and minds. But even moving in that direction is is fantastic. So all of those things are good. But where where do we need to grow? Uh, I think that we need to always grow in unity as a movement like that. It just I feel like divide and conquer is, you know, sort of the, the enemy of what is real, true and good. And that can be our Achilles heel. In the pro-life movement, you know, we can be competitive. And, and I see this especially at the level of the states. There's so much division and competition. So I think to uh, to really seek unity and humility in our work um, and importantly, supporting women, of course. So we've come a long way. So even when you look at like five, six years ago, the pregnancy care movement and the maternity home movement were supplying um, upwards of 100 million in free resources to women and men facing unexpected pregnancy. So these are things like diapers, formula, I hate to say formula with a shortage right now, but but these kinds of things, you know, um, healthcare, housing, um, childcare, all of these different things. Two years ago, it was already increased to 270 million. I think now in the wake of the Texas law that passed in September, the heartbeat law, I'm guessing that we've doubled that 270 million already or close to that. So we are doing a lot to give resources to men and women facing unexpected pregnancies in our country. But we're going to need to continue to really come alongside uh, families and support them and and give them everything that they need and also enact good policies to help uh, to help these young families. So let me change gears a bit here, Jeannie, something we talk about in our book. We have a whole chapter um, that we kind of pitch as a chapter about equality and the ways in which legal abortion has harmed equality in our society. And a a couple of the big themes we touch on there are um, sort of the horrible reality of sex-selective abortion, particularly in Mm. in countries around the world, and then um, disability-based abortion and kind of the idea that, well, maybe, you know, some human beings are better off dead because of their, you know, uh, disabilities or or parents and families might suffer too much if these children are brought into the world, this sort of thing. I wonder if you could talk a bit about those particularly difficult topics and and especially how um, Americans who are on the fence about abortion in general might, uh, you you know, kind of learn to think about these particular types of abortion? Yeah, absolutely. Great, great question. So, and by the way, our theme for the March for Life this year uh, was equality begins in the womb as well. And so, um, yeah, and the the beautiful thing about equality is what we're really talking about there is being equal in dignity, but all inherently different, you know, like the, the difference in gender and men and women, but also just the difference in every human being. And uh, I'm just reminded now as I'm sort of speaking out loud of this beautiful little mini documentary that was done a number of years ago, gosh, like maybe 10 years ago now, and it was called Flashes of Color. And it was all about uh, people with disability, how they bring such color to the world in, in different ways. And we all do because none of us is quote unquote perfect, right? But uh, but essentially, I mean, it, this philosophical understanding of what it means to be human and and to have inherent human dignity just simply because we are human and we are persons, 
Um, and you can look at that from different perspectives. I mean, from the religious perspective, it's because we're made in the image of God. From from the philosophical person, it's because our essence is um, personhood, that we are persons and that we are all you know equal in dignity, but different therein. So I think just to carry that to um, the most vulnerable of persons, which is just the, the youngest in the womb, is, is so critical. So, um, you know, a person in the womb is just in, in developing in their stages and they, they need our protection as they're developing. But it's just horrific uh, to recognize the reality that, you know, a little one who has a poor prenatal diagnosis, whether it's false or not, and many of them are false is much disproportionately targeted for abortion. I mean, anywhere from 60 to 85% more likely to be aborted. And, you know, in Iceland, they brag about having, quote unquote, eradicated little ones with Down syndrome. Well, they haven't eradicated Down syndrome. I mean, they've aborted all of the little ones there. Or yes, yes, the gender selection abortion. So even in our country, that's a problem. When you look at the CDC reports, I'm sorry to say that some Asian American populations do disproportionately target uh, little girls for abortion because little boys are prized a little bit more. And, and certainly around the country, I mean, we remember um, the book, I think it was called Gender Side, uh, but we know in India and China, for example, that um, they're having problems having enough husbands for the, I'm sorry, having enough wives for, for the men that are there. I mean, real societal problems because of the sex selection abortion. So these are issues that not only um, just break your heart because of the discriminatory basis behind them, but they have long-ranging societal implications with very negative ramifications. Yeah, I, th I think we cite some of those um, same statistics, both on the, the the Down syndrome statistic, the missing girls, the gender side, um, uh, all, all in the book. And it's just, um, it's heartbreaking to really think about, you know, what that means. Um, you know, what, 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 what the realities that lie behind those uh, statistics. Um, I want to go back to something that you said uh, um, in answer to my previous question about um, the strengths, the weaknesses, you know, where we are. And you mentioned that we now have up to 3,000 of the pregnancy resource centers. Um, and I want to encourage people listening, um, you know, pray for these centers. Um, if you're, you know, if you have the wherewithal to make financial donations, you know, please do so. Um, get to know the ones that are in your neighborhood. We used to live on Capitol Hill, my wife and I, and Capitol Hill Pregnancy Center was, you know, right down the road. We got to know some of the people there. Uh, the Northwest Center of D.C. Now, now we're in Virginia, um, Birthright, Loudoun, Mary Shelter. There are these wonderful um, organizations, you know, all across the globe or all across the states. They're probably, for, for all I know, all across the globe as well. Um, can you tell us more about them? Uh, one of the things, you know, until I actually got – when I was working at the Heritage Foundation, every every year we did like a day of service uh, for my department. Jennifer Marshall was my boss. She organized it. And one year we actually went to Capitol Hill Pregnancy um, uh, Center and we just spent the day, you know, reorganizing all the shelves of clothes and, um, you know, people had donated baby clothes and all that stuff. But um, until you actually get to know it, you don't really know what they're all about. Could you, you know, share for for our listeners – you know, the heroic work that goes on there and, you know, any any suggestions you have for how they can uh, be supportive? So for starters, I would describe the Pregnancy Resource Center movement as well as the maternity home movement as the untold story. 
in the the pro-life movement or culture of life movement. And uh, these folks are, in some ways, they're so on the front lines because they're facing and, and interacting and serving women and men who are really thinking about choosing abortion every single day, but they're, you know, not like talking to the media or they're not getting a lot of, you know, accolades for the kind of work that they do, et cetera. And um, pregnancy care centers are primarily voluntarily staffed. I think it's something like 95% voluntary staff, but, and this is critical, most of them these days have gone quote unquote medical, which means that they have ultrasonography available. So they'll, they'll give free ultrasounds or other, you know, STD or pregnancy tests um, to their clients. And for because of that, they do have medical oversight. So they'll typically have a doctor or a nurse practitioner or someone like that who's their um, medical expert on staff who, you know, can sign off and make sure that things are, are running well. Um, but so just I know I mentioned some of this before. And let me say this. The Charlotte Lozier Institute has one of my favorite resources on pregnancy care centers. It's just a booklet. It's, it's either the third or the fourth edition. And I was blessed years ago when I worked at Family Research Council to be part of, of compiling this booklet. Um, and it, it just tells some of the stories of pregnancy care centers and how far the movements come, you know, since the mid 80s and uh, shows how we pulled together the data of, you know, these days giving over well over 270 million in free resources to men and women. But they also serve 270 million people a year. Uh, so the the amount of people that they're serving is just truly, truly astounding. But so I'd, I'd encourage your listeners to check that out. You did ask Ryan, and I love this question, what can they do to get involved? So always just supporting, I mean, financially is is great and your money will go really far. Because like I said, these are primarily voluntarily staffed and they, they really stretch their pennies. Um, I can tell you just from working a little bit with Mary Shelter in Fredericksburg, they they do so much on a real shoestring budget. Um, and so another just kind of a fun idea, something that uh, I've been involved in before is, you know, you can throw like a, a baby shower for your local pregnancy center or maternity home center and then give everything that people bring to that, you know, whether it is like the diapers, the formula, the clothes, the um, crib, all the different things, you can donate that to your local center or they almost all have local benefits that, that you can support as well. And certainly they're always looking for, and I would say that this is a call to discern. Um, like a unique, you know, personal mission to work at a pregnancy center, um, volunteer there, you know, a couple hours a week. One of my best friends did that for a period of time. And she would also counsel women who were coming in and were considering abortion at that time. And it was so beautiful to hear the stories that she would uh, experience on a regular basis. And she's still in touch with some of the women that she counseled then. So that's a beautiful thing to do. So those are some of the ways that you can get involved. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much for those suggestions. I always have people asking what, what they can do to get involved in the pro-life movement. I think that really is, for most people, the front line, um, and it will be even more so if, um, as we're hoping, Rose overturned. But Jeannie, do you have any kind of final thoughts you want to add about any of these topics we've discussed or anything else? You know, there's one topic that I like to bring up when we're talking about pro-life issues, and it's, it's adoption. And I, I think that 
it's adoption is a tough thing. I'm not going to say that it's like this easy, simple thing, but often what happens when a woman is facing an unexpected pregnancy is she sees in front of her three possible choices and she's trying to figure out like what could be the least pain for her life, like what's going to be the best path, the least painful path for my life. And so what she sees in front of her, the three choices, the first would be um, choosing life for the child, bringing the child to term and raising the child. And sadly, she would sometimes see that as death of her dreams because this is an unexpected pregnancy and it's different than she had planned. Um, The second choice, death of the child, which is abortion. And so she sees that as a viable opportunity. And then third, it's sadly sometimes called death of her motherhood because many women feel like, oh, a good woman couldn't actually choose to give up her child for adoption. But the truth is that adoption is a noble and it's a beautiful and a very sacrificial decision. Um, Not an easy decision, but a beautiful decision. And so you're looking at these three things. So adoption, abortion, and then having your child and um, raising your child. And I think that when a woman is facing these different opportunities or these different possibilities, she thinks that if she chooses abortion, that it's almost like taking a pencil and erasing away that life rather than actually taking the life. And But we all know that's not true. Like it, it is taking a life and that that causes such enormous pain as we were talking about earlier in the show, obviously death to the child, but also such incredible pain to the mother emotionally and physically and psychologically. And so, um, so I like to put a plug in for adoption whenever I can, because there is such a disparity there's in our country every year, there are only about 20,000 infant adoptions, but there are well over 800,000 abortions. And if we could, I know it sounds so simplistic, but if we could bridge that gap, when women are backed into a corner, if they could consider choosing the noble option of adoption, I mean, it would just make such a difference. And so that's something I like to talk about. So I would just add that to the conversation. Thank you for raising that. It's really important. And, and definitely I've heard pro-lifers bring this up to say, you know, women almost feel like that there's something um, kind of scary or or dangerous about their child going out there into the world without them. And obviously that's understandable, but it shouldn't be to the point where you think, you know, killing them is a better option or somehow a a safer option for them, right? Because death is never better than an unknown, you know, a life full of unknowns. So I'm glad that you emphasize that point. But we want to thank you so much, you know, not only for all the work you do for March for Life and for the pro-life movement, but for joining us today and for your excellent insights uh, into all these topics. Oh, well, thanks so much for having me. And congratulations on your phenomenal book. It's so good. And it's such a gift to the movement at this particular time. So thank you for taking the time to write that. And thank you to both of you who are working so hard to build a culture of life. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Life After Dobbs. Ryan and I are co-authors of the new book, Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing, which you can order now. If you enjoyed our conversation, please subscribe, leave a review, and share it with a friend. This podcast has been sponsored by the Ethics and Public Policy Center. You can learn more about our work at our website, eppc.org, including our Life and Family Initiative.